The following podcast episode could be triggering for those who've experienced abuse or violence. This is also not a podcast that should be listened to with children present. We will be talking in depth about domestic violence. Listener discretion is advised. I've been shoved, choked, and told I should just kill myself. And if I did, his sister would just raise the kids. I was told I wasn't pretty enough, I wasn't thin enough, and wasn't willing to have enough children to please him. I was told he had to cheat on me just to tolerate being married to me. I spent a week in a women's shelter in Dallas, Texas with a two-year-old daughter and pregnant with my youngest son. I didn't tell my family until afterward because I was embarrassed. I had my hand bent back so far I thought my wrist was going to break. He did it because I was tired, and he was tired of me crying and begging him to watch the baby so I could just get some sleep. I had been up for several nights in a row. I was told I had to have sex, even if I was sick or I didn't feel like it, because it was my duty as a wife. I was given an allowance and told I had to buy my own toiletries with that money. If I worked, I had to give him my paycheck. And I was given the silent treatment for days at a time. He would ignore the children as well and lock himself in a room, refusing to answer the door. All of this is abuse. My name is Heather, and I am a domestic violence survivor. Love doesn't berate you, control you, confine you, dictate who you should be. I remember reading the popular Bible verse regarding love. You know the one. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. And it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Corinthians. I remember reading this from a woman's Bible that a lady gave to me when I was married. And I remember reading that verse and realizing that the man that I loved, who claimed to be a humble follower of Christ, showed me none of these traits. What we had was not love, but a contract, a dictatorship, and it was abusive. And yet I stayed. I mean, I finally left, but I would return again and again and again. Domestic violence does not discriminate. It's not reserved for the less educated and it doesn't target a certain tax bracket. What it does is break people and it affects people who are strong and makes them a former shell of who they once were. It's a cancer. It's insidious and it's a hard topic we're going to dive deep into today on this episode of Girl, How'd You Do That? Hello and welcome to Girl, How'd You Do That? A podcast for women that's inspirational, motivational, and informational. I'm your host and creator, Heather Campese. Welcome to the show. Well, this is a chaotic week for me. I'm packing up my house in Sarasota, Florida uh, to make the move in just over a week now to the Atlanta, Georgia area. 
it's bittersweet and it's a lot of work for one person, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I've been on my own for about 10 years now. I raised my children almost completely alone. It was hard, sometimes really hard, but it was for the most part joyful, happy, and peaceful, unlike the marriage I left behind. You know, I share a lot of personal information on these podcasts. Today will be no different. Um, It's not that I enjoy people knowing my business or that I like talking about myself. Come on, you know I like to talk about myself, but not in this way. Um, It's because on the surface, I don't look like somebody who's traveled the rocky road I have, filled with a lot of sadness and illness, abuse, depression, heartache, but I have. And that's the basis of today's episode, really. That it's important that we don't assume or judge. Though, look, it's human nature, and I'd be lying if I said I've mastered it. I'm sharing my story today, and my guest on this episode is sharing her story today to bring awareness to the fact that domestic violence can happen to anybody. Now, for most of this episode, I'm going to say woman because it's a motivational podcast for women, but we all know that women and men suffer from domestic violence. So I want you to remember though, that though you think there's a woman who's strong and in control of her life, a woman that lives a middle to high income life and can't possibly be in the throes of any domestic violence, you're wrong. We can be. And I also wanna bring awareness to the fact that no one wants to stay in these abusive relationships, but the work of leaving well, it's harder than you could ever imagine. My next guest was successful in her career and became a criminal trial attorney, but she had a secret, a secret she had never confided in anyone. Her husband verbally and physically abused her, and she concealed it from everyone in her life. As a former prosecutor, She had extensive resources available, but she was still unable to break free. It wasn't until the abuse publicly escalated that her secret was finally out. She remained unbroken and finally summoned the strength to escape the cruel and violent relationship that had become her daily reality. Her story is told in her new book, But Why Did You Stay? Please welcome my next guest, Makisha Jane Walker. Makisha, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Listen, I am so excited to talk with you, Um, even though we just started communicating email a couple of days ago. As soon as I read some excerpts of your book and your story, I felt like you were a sister from another mother because we have lived kind of a parallel life in one (laughs) unfortunate respect. But um, why don't you start off with just kind of giving us a little bit of background about yourself and uh, how you ended up meeting your husband? Sure. So um, I was raised here in Houston uh, with my two sisters. We lived, you know, a normal middle class childhood. Um, I figured out very early on, and I don't remember what was the specific incident that caused me to believe this, but I always wanted to be a prosecutor from from as far back as I can remember. And so, you know, did that, went to school, um, worked through college, worked through law school, and then was offered a a pre-commit position at the Harris County District Attorney's Office, which is in Houston, third largest county in the United States. 
Um, so it's a big deal to be a prosecutor there because you come across a, a lot of different types of crime. Yeah, I bet. It was after I started working there that I met my ex-husband who was a uh, police officer and we instantly hit it off and started seeing each other all the time. I mean, practically nonstop and moved in together very quickly. Like everything moved really fast. Um, we were engaged um, and I met him in March of 2003 and we didn't get married till January of 2005. So there was some time in there, um, you know, and I, I felt like, although I had rushed in, to, you know, getting together with him and moving in, I felt like I'd kind of given the relationship long enough to make sure that everything was going to be okay. Right. Um, so there was no physical, no physical abuse or violence uh, before we got married. And it, and it literally happened right after we got married, it started. Do you, uh, just a quick question, because then when it comes into my mind, I'm sort of like squirrel. Um, did you feel like looking back, he had a narcissistic personality at all? Oh, for sure. 100%. Yeah, definitely. So even though there wasn't any physical abuse, though, do you look back now and see maybe some emotional stuff going on or some put downs or some passive aggressive, anything like that in the time that you were with him before the marriage? Yes, um, there's definitely things that you know, red flags that are, you know, huge red flags now in hindsight, but at the time, um, didn't, didn't really stick out to me like they should have. And just things like, you know, always wanting to be where I was, know where I was, um, you know, didn't like me to have friends, especially male friends. Um, you know, and I kind of, in the beginning chalked all those things up to, well, he just really likes me. And it never dawned on me that it could be, you know, the very beginning of controlling behavior. Right, right. You know, and so then by that time, you're, you know, you're in love with someone. And so the person that, that you, that I fell in love with was the person that he allowed me to see. And that's not who he really was. And who he was, was slowly revealed over time. But I think that the most critical um, part of domestic violence that, you know, people excuse is, is verbal, you know, like someone gets upset, maybe they're stressed out, they said they didn't mean it, they apologize. But the verbal abuse is, in many cases, and, and it was in mine, how he got me to a place mentally, where I was so messed up that I would stay in a relationship that was becoming violent. Well, yeah. And you and I just talked about that because I told you, um, and, and I don't think we discussed this or not, but um, I've been doing stand-up comedy part-time for about five years. And oh, cool. I've described before, um, because I, I ended up marrying, well, going back to my abuser for what I call a second tour of duty. But I, I use that term because it, it is like war and the, the kind of thing that you're describing, which you and I just discussed before we started this recording, is the psychological warfare. That's that's where they start to break. Mm -hmm. They start to break you down in your head first. That's definitely true. And I, you know, had always been a really independent person, you know, good self-esteem, lots of friends. You know, there was no reason to think that 
you know, and in fact, when my secret did come out and all of my friends and family found out what I'd been going through, they were all in disbelief. I mean, they, you know, most of them didn't care for my ex-husband, but they never thought that I would be in an abusive situation because I'm such a strong person and there's no way that I would ever allow myself to be in that situation. And so everyone was stunned by the news when it came out. Well, and I think the other thing that is important to bring out too, because I, I know one of the kind of bullet points we want to hit home in this episode is the fact that just because you don't think it's happening doesn't mean it isn't happening. And these people that commit these type of things are masters of deception. And Mm -hmm. if they showed who they are behind closed doors with us to the outside world, well, then the jig is up. They have, Mm -hmm. was that not the case with you? Two separate personalities they show. Yeah. Very, what I would refer to as Jekyll and Hyde, you know, he's one person and he has this perception in this, or he had this, you know, public image that, it was so important to keep up, but then, you know, everything went to hell as soon as the front door shut. Um, and you know, my situation was, um, different because when my abusive situation came out and everybody found out about it, I had, I was at the time I had already become a defense attorney, but I had spent almost five years at the DA's office in Harris County and, um, you know, initially worked on family violence cases. And I, I found out that I was really enjoyed them. It was one of my favorite cases to, to handle, um, you know, cause the DWIs have, you know, a science element to it and that was never my strong suit. So I really enjoyed the, um, the assault cases and, um, I, you know, didn't, meet my ex-husband until part way into my career. So there was, there was a portion of my career where I was trained um, as a family violence prosecutor and on a misdemeanor and a felony level. And it's a, it's a division of the DA's office in Harris County that's dedicated solely to complaining witnesses who no longer want to prosecute or they're minimizing. And so there's prosecutors and investigators and caseworkers and social workers. And so they send all the cases there where people want to back out. And, you know, years ago, um, you know, depending on what part of the country you live in, it was good enough for the complaining witness to write a statement saying that she's taking back the charges. And now, as we all know, the states are continuing with the cases and picking them up. Right. So I can remember prosecuting several of these cases and really not understanding domestic violence at all because I was prosecuting it because, you know, it was wrong for a man to hit a woman and, you know, he did it. So he's guilty. Um, But not really understanding. I, I, I would, I can remember specific situations where I would think to myself, what is wrong with this lady? You know, this is the seventh time he's put her in the hospital and she keeps going back for more. And, you know, it just shows how, um, people really don't understand domestic violence unless it happens to them or someone they love. And, um, You know, I think the thoughts that I had before I understood it are very common across society. Well, but and I think, too, it's important to interject that we have seen what happens when women try to leave certain types of domestic violence guys. They end up dead. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So I 
you know, I get, I get it. Um, but, but the other thing I wanted to touch on too is, you know, I think people a lot of times think that it only happens to, to, you know, uneducated, lower income females. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I lived in a half a million dollar house and, you know, he didn't want me working. So I didn't work. And, you know, I drove a nice car and we lived in a gated neighborhood. People don't think it happens in those places. And it does. It does. And I think that those are the situations, honestly, you know, they, they say that 70% of domestic violence is not reported to law enforcement. So I would venture to guess that the, the higher of that percentage is going to be based in those types of relationships where, you know, um, there is, there are people that have money and they're educated because I think it's, it's embarrassing to come out. I I know for so long, I didn't want to be labeled a a victim because the way that it made me feel, I didn't want everyone knowing my business, you know, and I thought it was something that if I tried really hard that I could make better because I, you know, didn't realize that he was the person he was showing me, but I was still in love with the person that he showed me when I fell in love with him. Well, and they set you up for, for failure because you keep thinking, I'm just not perfect enough. I know in my case, you know, I could never clean the house good enough. I never raised our children good enough. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't attractive enough. I, I I wasn't willing to have as many children as he wanted. It was always something. They always change the rules of the game. As soon as you get to a certain level and you think that's it, now it's changed. You got to go up another level and you'll never please them. Mm -hmm. But in your mind, you just keep thinking, if I just, if I can just master this, then he'll be happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, It really is something that, you know, when you're sitting around talking to people that haven't been through it, it's a really hard concept to grasp, but, um, there is, you know, people generally want to make their marriage work. I mean, nobody wants to get divorced, especially when there's kids involved. Um, and so there's this, I think, common thing in these domestic violence relationships where the victim blames herself um, because of all the things she's told. Um, and, and it just creates this cycle where it continues on and on. So, so without giving away details, and, and we are doing this episode on the heels of a book you just put out, correct? That's right. Why, why don't you tell us a little bit about your book? Well, my book is called, But Why Did You Stay? And, you know, what happened with me is, I think I, I already said he was a police officer. Um, we after we got married, he quit his job and decided he wanted to go to law school. So I was supporting the entire family and, um, there was a lot of stress and I myself had been to law school and knew how stressful it could be. And I excused a lot of his behavior in that time period. Um, as you know, look, I just chalk it up to a really stressful situation. And once we get through law school, then things will be better. And then once we, you know, get on the other side of the bar exam, things will be better. And once he ran for public office, and once we finish this election, things will be better. And every time you got to that next level, it was not better. And so, you know, instead of what normal people would think, well, okay, you know, it's time to give up now. Um, For me, there was a, a slow transition from, I love him, I want to fix him, I want to help him, you know, understand what a functional loving relationship is like to, um, 
you know, staying out of complete and utter fear because I'd been told so many times there is no divorce. You won't divorce me. I'll kill your mom. I'll kill your sister. I'll kill you. And, and you start to believe it. And so if you believe that your abuser is capable of killing you, um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of places you can go because you can, you can change your car. You can change um, where you where you stay at the location where you hide from him. But ultimately, most women are, are going to have to go back to work. And if your abuser knows where you work, then, you know, you're you're not really safe unless you can right. find a way to change that up. Right. So and you had children. I did. When we um, when we first got together, um, he had a four year old son who I adopted and um, later found out years later, he had been through um, the same thing with that child's mom. And it was a really um, volatile situation that, you know, he made me when he told me about it, he made her to be, you know, the evil one in all of it. And that's what I thought for so long when in reality, you know, he he was, and, you know, he confronted her and said, if you don't sign this um, relinquishment of your rights, then I'm going to make sure that you go to jail for back due child support and spent, you have your baby that you're pregnant with now in jail. And he was a police officer at the time. And so, you know, I, I didn't learn till later that that's how I was able to adopt our son is because of the threat that he made to his former wife. So, um, but, you know, I called the book, but why did you stay? Because it was the most frequently asked question um, from friends and family. And, um, you know, in the beginning, I really didn't understand how to answer it. And the question itself was very, um, you know, like an attacking manner. And I know that the people that were asking didn't mean it that way. They didn't um, mean it to be like, why are you so stupid? Why didn't you leave the first time he hit you? But that's, that's what victims of domestic violence hear. They hear the judgment. Um, and it's easy to sit on the sidelines and say, why didn't you leave? When, you know, there are some days that you finish the day feeling like you won because you didn't end up dead. And you are literally too afraid and exhausted to think about anything else other than making it through each day. Well, and you bring up an important point. I did an interview with a lady yesterday that was a victim of sexual abuse throughout her childhood by her own mother. And one of the things she said was people always act as though it, it couldn't have possibly happened. It's your mother. So you must be making it up mm -hmm. or you're, you're somehow to blame. You know, wh why didn't you tell someone, you know, why, why don't, children tell about sexual abuse so it's the same thing we just I think if it's too abhorrent if we just can't possibly fathom it happening in our own minds we, we have to push it out as well it had to be something you did mm -hmm. what did you do to push somebody to do something like that and why if it was that bad why didn't you go mm -hmm. no Which I just that sad in our society it is. And I think, you know, that's, that's one of the main reasons, you know, when I, all of this stuff happened and I ended up going through my divorce, I, during that time period, wanted it to all go away. And um, he almost had me convinced to tell a version of the, the final culminating event that happened in public. Um, 
that wasn't true so that he wouldn't get in trouble. And, you know, I, I, I almost did it just because I didn't want the people in my, you know, employment area, you know, like judges and prosecutors and other attorneys, colleagues, for them to, to know that I had been in that situation, I would rather it just turn it around and say, yeah, it was a one-time thing. And so I worked for many years to get this behind me, you know, and judges left the bench and new ones came on and, you know, prosecutors left and new ones came on. It got to a point years later where no one remembered it anymore, even though it had been highly publicized because of his political position. And something recently inside of me said, you just, you have to do this. You have to share your story because um, there are other women out there that could benefit from it. And if my sharing, you know, to, to make the book interesting, these most intimate details of my life so that they can some way relate to it and feel normalized and get out of what they're in, then to me, it's worth it to expose myself in that way. You know, I think it's, and and I agree 100%, and that was why um, I wanted to do this interview with you and to interject my own experience, because I've waited until my own children were grown. So now my kids are in their 20s, and I I feel I can safely share the story, and they don't have to deal with repercussions, Mm -hmm. as you dealt with, too, when you're dealing with co-parenting with somebody like this. It's a nightmare Um, so I finally feel like I have no connection whatsoever and I can be free with this story. But speaking of children, uh, did, did your adopted son witness any of this? Um, you know, I think kids see more than we know they do. Um, you know, I know that was certainly true in my childhood. Um, but there was one incident specifically I can remember that yes he was present no, two two times he was present um and then you know there were things a couple of times that my ex did to him under the guise of discipline you know he typically on that on an average day you know didn't take his frustration out on his son it was me but there were two specific incidents um one where he punched him in the head and grabbed him by the neck. And, you know, I can remember writing in my journal that night, you know, if he does anything like this ever again, I'm definitely going to call the police. And then the other thing happened years later when he was probably 14. Um, So not very often um, was, you know, that were the children involved. Well, and I, I think one of my concerns, too, when I was in it and, and then out of it was I had a, a, a son and a daughter, and I didn't want my son to think this is how mm-hmm. normal married people behave. This is how a man treats a woman. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want my daughter to see me in that type of environment and think, well, this must be okay. So then she goes into a relationship and mm-hmm. she accepts the same treatment. Yeah. And so I, um, you know, there's a lot of things in my book that I think can help people. Cause I think a lot of people that are in relationships that are violent are literally in denial. Like they don't realize they're being abused because it's become the norm. And so 
the situation that I went through as a prosecutor, I was taught in my training to document everything. You know, you touch a file, you talk to a witness, you write it down. So the next attorney that comes along, they can pick up right where you left off and don't have to figure out what you did. And so that kind of training poured over into when he would abuse me and then tell me, you walk into that courthouse every single day and you never tell anyone, no one's ever going to believe you. Um, that kind of, um, that and, and, and my understanding and belief that I was going to die at his hands made me want to document it because I wanted my sisters and my family to know what happened to me when my body was missing because he said he was going to, you know, bury me somewhere where they would never find me. I wanted the truth to be known. And so initially, you know, I started keeping all of this documentation as, you know, something to be revealed after I was dead. But when this culminating incident happened and, um, you know, the, the wheels of justice kind of started to turn, even without me wanting them to, I had all this stuff. I had journal entries. I had pictures. I had audio recordings. Um, and so what it does for the book, I think, is, you know, after you read a chapter, there's a, a correlating chapter attachment section on the website. And so, you know, instead of just hearing me say, you know, he told me in a phone call that he was going to bite my trachea out of my throat and kill the whole family. You can hear him say that. And it's, um, you know, kind of like when you're watching TV in a, a 2020 episode and they say at the bottom actual 911 call, it just makes it more interesting. And I think that it'll help women empower themselves to get out of these situations, but also help people who love her understand why leaving isn't so easy and that what they're going through is, you know, on a daily basis, they've established, you know, this is how I get through my day. And when you come along and ask someone, Hey, you need to get out. You need to come now. It's scary. And it's proven statistically that the most dangerous time for any woman and the homicide rates go up is when you're leaving. You're listening to my one-on-one -on -one interview with Makisha Jane Walker. She has a new book out now called, But Why Did You Stay? Her Journey About Domestic Violence. You can find Makisha's book on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. There's also a Facebook page, But Why Did You Stay? And you can go to her website, ButWhyDidYouStay.com. And now, back to the final portion of our episode. True. I, I agree. And, and uh, I will say I went to your website um, in the past couple of days trying to prepare for this interview and I listened to some of the audio and I saw some of your nanny cam snippets um, and it was kind of triggering. Yeah, <laughs> really. It took me it took me back to those days. And, um, you know, that's another question. Do you ever stand outside yourself now and go, God, I, I can't even. I can't even begin to understand where my head was there because you're so different now that you've gotten mm -hmm. yourself removed from it. Well, I look at it as kind of like a period in my life where, you know, I, I wasn't getting to be who I actually was. And so I, I don't spend a lot of time looking back and thinking about it because, you know, what's done is done. And I would rather focus on 
all the, all the good things that are happening in my life rather than look back and think, you know, why did this happen? What, you know, what would have happened if I would have stood up to him the very first time he laid hands on me, you know, would things have played out differently because I would have shown him that I'm not going to take that, you know, I dealt with a lot of that for a long time and finally said, you know, it doesn't matter. It's over. What happened happened. Time to move on. Yeah. And, and I don't mean it in that way either, because, you know, I look at it as a period of time that, you know, I had two children from that relationship and I wouldn't trade Mm -hmm. my children for anything in the world. Um, But I guess I I mean it more as I've now been single dating on and off or in relationships, but never remarried since that, that relationship ended in 09. And I I appreciate the little things that I can do now that I would have been berated Mm -hmm. or he put his hands on me for Mm -hmm. before, you know, leaving a sink overnight, or maybe I don't feel like making my bed today. And I really appreciate having the ability to make those choices and not worry about what's mm-hmm. going to happen to me. <laughs> right. Not worrying if you're going to say the wrong thing. You know, I got lucky and, um, you know, that my husband that I'm married to now, he adopted my daughter and, um, I'm literally in a place right now where I can honestly say I would go through all the things I went through a hundred more times to be where I am today because it's literally perfect, you know, and sometimes I wonder, well, why couldn't have I had this from the very beginning, but then I wouldn't have my daughter, you know? So it's, it's just, um, not only that, but those experiences have culminated into making us who we are today. Yes, for sure. You know, but, but I do notice, and I don't know if you feel the same way This when we first met, the very thing that he said he was attracted to with me was the very thing he did everything in his power to turn me opposite mm-hmm. of, which I thought was weird. It took a long time after I got out of the marriage to be able to turn back to being the girl I was when I met him. Yeah. So it was interesting. So the court system do you think there the court system and um, law enforcement, is there still a ways to go on how we handle this kind of stuff? Or have we made some, some, well, leeway? you know, it's def- definitely gotten better than, than it, than it had been for sure. I mean, you know, everything's changed with law enforcement. It's not the days where, you know, you call your mom to come pick up your kid. Now they take the kid to jail or, or whatever. So, I think in all areas, things have kind of changed a little bit and um, definitely um, it varies from department to department and county to county. But I think everyone's trying to like like Houston Police Department has um, made some strides, you know, big in this area where a lot of times um, on a scene like that, they'll send out um, a team. So it's not just law enforcement, but it's, you know, a social worker to help um, connect you with resources. So if you need a place to stay or you need help developing like a safety plan or, um, you know, if you just want to have the information to have it, you know, that kind of thing. And then prosecutors are, you know, going forward with prosecutions, even when the complaining witness doesn't want to. And, you know, we'll get up there and, you know, maybe not testify at all or maybe testify on his behalf. They're still trying those cases. And I think that's important because, um, you know, words out on the street that you can't really beat your girl up and then 
coerce her into saying she doesn't want to prosecute and it's going to go away. So I think people generally in society have a better understanding and, you know, how much of a deterrent that is. I don't know um, if, if it is at all. Um, but, you know, maybe it's not her who calls the police. Maybe it's the neighbor who hears through the wall and that can start everything. And, and for me, you know, my situation, something happened and, and I talk about it in chapter one, but something happened in public where I had to be transported to the hospital and, um, you know, there was discussion of filing a felony versus a misdemeanor case because of my injuries. Um, so it was a big deal. And it's, it's like, once my secret got out, I felt like he didn't have the same amount of power that he had. I felt like I had the power now and I never imagined that releasing the secret or the secret coming out would, would do that. I thought that I didn't know what I expected, but once that happened and I was surrounded by, you know, friends and family, um, I was able to get out of the relationship and it, it did, it did take some time. Um, it, there was, it was very volatile afterwards. Um, but I ended up in the best possible situation. Um, and I'm, I'm, which is he gave up rights to his daughter and I conceivably in a perfect world, never have to see him again. Which is yes, fortunate. Because I know most people don't, don't have that luxury and don't end up like that. No, no. Yeah. And with, with my case, like I said, I was co-parenting with him and the first few years were not pleasant. He would hide money, disappear, claim poor pockets, not pay child support, mm-hmm. not parent, you know, that whole, that whole thing. Um, so we're going to wrap this up soon. What, what advice would you give to people on the outside looking in? They may have a friend that they suspect or a sister or a mother that is maybe in some sort of domestic violence situation. What can, what can we do as outsiders? Well, um, you know, if it's someone that you're very close to, um, I suggest doing a lot of reading on suggestions, you know, on the internet, on suggestions on how to talk to someone, um, because it's, it's such a fine line. And of course it depends on the person's personality, but you know, there are situations and I've had this happened to me. I've lost friends before because I tried to help and explain to them what I thought was right and what they needed. And the end result was them not agreeing with me and me getting completely shut out and in a position, not in a position to be able to help or support them through whatever they were going through anymore because I got shut out because I went too far. Well, and I think patience is uh, uh, something you really have to have with somebody in this. Cause like you said, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard to leave. And a lot of times you do a lot of false mm-hmm. starts to leave. Uh, and I think the people around you keep going, my God, what, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? Why do you keep going back? So having the patience and, and not, uh, because then you end up getting shut out and you're not going to be able to help them anyway. If you know, or you, or people I had in my life would get fed up and go, you know, if you're going back in again, I can't, I can't be around because it's emotionally exhausting. And what, what they don't realize is, yeah, they're tired of dealing with it, but they can't even begin to fathom what you're going through. If, you know, your little bit of discomfort sets them off into this exhaustion of, you know, mental exhaustion state, 
you know, can they stop for a second to think what it must be like to walk a mile in your shoes? And I just think it's very important that, you know, people that want to help try to educate themselves, you know, so that they're not pushing their timetable on the person, you know, like it's time to leave now because, you know, leaving is, is many times scarier than everything that person has already been through combined. And so you have to be there and support and tell them no matter what your decision, I'm still your friend. I still support you. I don't judge anything that you do. I just want to be here. And they may not hear it that way the first time. And you just have to keep explaining to them that you're with them no matter what decision they make, because when they get ready to leave, they will need you. Well, and I think too, it's important for people to realize that Domestic violence relationships are not. Oh, cookie yeah, cutter. very, very sure. I mean, you know, they have if you do research, they have these, you know, little signs that say the cycle of violence and that, you know, first he's really, really mean and does horrible things and that he, you know, apologizes. There's a honeymoon phase and then you go back into walking on eggshells again until the next thing happens. I think that, you know, that's a very broad generalization. And it doesn't fit every relationship and it doesn't fit every incident in every relationship. And so, you know, there's a little bit of all of that, I think, in all of these relationships. But every relationship can look completely different and be abusive. And the bottom line is you have no idea what's going on behind closed doors. People, you know, work hard to make these fabulous lives that they put on Facebook and everything's perfect. And here's our family portrait. And, you know, I think our default when we see these things is just to accept that and not pay attention to things like maybe your friend doesn't call you or text you as much. And, you know, maybe that's because she's isolated and maybe because that's having, she's having abuse in the home. And, you just chalk it up to, well, she's a sucky friend. She doesn't text me back, you know? So I, I think that sometimes we have to ask the hard questions, but in a way that's non-judgmental, like, is everything okay in your world? You know, is, is everything okay with your marriage? And, you know, even if they don't want to talk about it, then at least you've planted the seed that, Hey, you're there and you'll listen. Just because there's not actual physical violence going on does not mean that someone is not in a domestic violence relationship because Mm -hmm. intimidation and control and threats are at the basis of all of this. And a lot of them don't even have to end up putting their hands on you. They'll, like you said, they'll threaten to hurt you or their kids or threaten to hurt, hurt the pets or they keep you finance. Like with mine, mine was financial control so that you don't have any access to money. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it, people need to see that those are also signs. It's not just somebody showing oh, for up. With sure. I mean, every, you know, aside from the, the scar on my forehead, everything that ever happened to me healed up and went away, but it's the emotional stuff that, that leaves you messed up. I mean, you know, years later, I find myself like I was going to go get a um, Thai massage and I turn my ringer off when I'm in there because I don't obviously don't want my phone to ring when I'm getting massaged. And I can remember telling my husband, like, here's the address of where I'm going to be, you know, if you need to find me. And he's like, why are you telling me this? That's so weird. 
<laughs> and, you know, I catch myself doing stuff like that, like feeling like, you know, it's weird that I don't have to account for where I'm going to be and why I'm not picking up my phone. And it's, it's because I was getting a massage, not because I was, you know, having an affair with somebody, you know, so I think those things stay with you. And, you know, although you can heal, there's still little parts that come back that'll be triggered by something, you know, like, like my thing is my husband, he has to announce himself when he comes in the house, because if he doesn't and I, you know, get scared, I, I scream bloody murder, like the top of my lungs. <laughs> and it's issues like that, you know, just little things, you know, you scare easier and, and things like that. You brought up a similar pattern that I experienced as well. And that's in the beginning of the relationship. They are you know, the prince mm -hmm. on the noble steed and they move, they, they move extremely fast. My relationship was that way too. Um, you know, I think that is, and that's an, that's kind of a narcissist mm -hmm. uh, pattern by the way. Um, but I think it's because they want to just bowl you over with these gestures so quickly. It knocks you mentally and emotionally mm -hmm. kind of off oh, the yeah. game. Yeah, I can remember yeah. um, in the beginning of our relationship, like after we had gone on one date, I can remember telling a secretary at the office, I'm like, this is the guy, this is the one, I just know it, we're going to get married. And like, literally, we didn't even know each other. I always tell people, it's really, I, I read this somewhere and I'm like, you know, this really holds true. The person you meet is mm -hmm. really not the true person. It takes, I think they said it takes about six months for people to totally relax and let the mask drop so that you see who you're really with. So these relationships that move way too fast and end in disaster, a lot of that could be avoided by just slowing it down. And if they don't want to go slow, mm -hmm. guess what? Yeah. It ain't for you, you know? So as we wrap this up, if there's one last tip or statement that you want to give our listeners, what would that well, be? Well, I, I know that my family, you know, after they found out, they told me um, that there were times, you know, I was trying to deal with my relationship and, you know, they thought that I was just becoming a bitch just over the years. Like I didn't want to hang out anymore. You know, I, 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 it just wasn't the same. And when in reality, I was dealing with this you know, overwhelming exhaustion and fear and trying to get through the day and keep him happy so that I don't get beat later. Um, that, you know, the way they interpreted it was that there, there was something wrong with me. So I, I think if you've got a friend, a sister, a mom, if you have, you know, a female in your life that is not acting like they normally do, don't chalk it up to she's stressed out and she's being a bitch and she's taking it out on me. Ask them, engage with them and say, you know, hey, is everything okay? I'm here if you need me. And, and that way, because it's so prevalent, you know, the statistic of one in three women will have some sort of physical violence in a relationship in their lifetime. I mean, that means it's happening more than, than we know and more than we're willing to admit. And um, I, I don't know that I would have been able to be strong enough during all of that to come out to my friends or family if they'd come at me that way. But um, maybe I would have. Makisha, this has been great. I really appreciate you sharing your story. And uh, of course, thank you for having me. Today. I really enjoyed it.
I want to thank Makisha for joining me on the podcast today and sharing your story and insight. And again, you can order her book, But Why Did You Stay, from Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Uh, I believe there are Kindle versions as well as hardcover and paperback copies available. She also has a Facebook page for But Why Did You Stay and a website, ButWhyDidYouStay.com, where you can find more information. And I'm also going to list links to help if you or someone you know out there is in a domestic violence relationship and need help getting out. So on our next episode, I will be talking with Rebecca Zung. She is one of the top 1% of attorneys in the nation, having been recognized by U.S. News and World Report as one of the best lawyers in America. She has her own podcast, Negotiate Your Best Life, and we're going to be discussing how to divorce and negotiate with a narcissist. I sure could have used her expertise in my own divorce of a narcissist, so I hope you will uh, stay tuned and join Join us on the next podcast. And as always, stay safe, stay true, and you keep being you, girl. Take care of yourselves out there and each other. Good night.